0: All right, well, my name's Jeff. I think maybe I already said that, but I'm happy to be with you. And we are in one of my favorite texts this morning. In fact, I don't really have any other stories this morning. We are just going to meander through this text. This text has been deeply meaningful uh, to me for about 20 years, and it kind of preaches itself, even studying it this week. The amount of things written on this text throughout the last 2,000 years, because of the nature of it, uh, it's just profound. I just really enjoyed it. And so I'm going to try to narrate my story alongside this story as we go. And maybe you will uh, with others before you find your story in this story as well. I had the privilege, many of you know this, but before I came to cross you really the year before, my wife, Kami, and I got gifted, which is crazy, <laughs> but kind of got gifted a trip to Israel. So I actually got to stand in the historic location where we don't know for sure. There are some places we know for sure. We don't know for sure, but uh, church history tells us this location is where our text took place. So I got some pictures. Here's Kami and I standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Here's a church. Yeah, you can go ahead. So the church at the location. Why this location? Well, I'll show you. Here's Kami outside. One more. Next one. There she is. Look at Kamey in the fun. But inside the church is a giant rock. Next one. There it is. So that rock, and this is a big reason why this is the thought of the location you're going to see as we read through the text this morning, Jesus prepares the resurrected Jesus because we're in Easter time. We're, we're, we're doing the full 50 days of Easter. We did not run through Easter this year. We're going to enjoy. We're going to savor Easter. And the resurrected Jesus appears to seven of his disciples and makes them breakfast. And this rock, some people view as, as the table, the place where they sat around to eat their breakfast. That's what church history has said for 2,000 years. Uh, just, there again, there's just, you just see, that's the Sea of Galilee. There it is, some of it. And then the next two are two of my favorites, that one, and the next one's basically the same. But our friends took our picture. We were just, uh, this place is called Peter's Primacy, and we were just praying, just sitting there, just the peacefulness. And honestly, praying through this text, just thinking about what Jesus did in Peter's life, Um, and maybe he could do it, definitely he could do it, if we let him in our lives. So so that's a little background, a little picture of where this took place. I was even reading this week, uh, somebody had sent me a blog just of just some resurrection thoughts from John's Gospel, chapters 20 and 21, which is where we were last week and this week, and one blogger said this, I never tire of imagining myself in these stories, wondering what it would have been like to be so sad and disillusioned after watching Jesus be crucified, to need something so desperately and not even know what I needed. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. As we age, as we dive into this text, as you try to find your story in this story, maybe that's where you need something desperately, maybe, maybe you know, but maybe you don't even know what you need. But here's what this text is gonna help us see: that Jesus will seek you out, and he will provide exactly what you need. Actually, he might even invite you, challenge you to do something you don't want to do, but you'll find out it's exactly what you need. And you will cry out uh, with with the author of our gospel: it is the Lord. It is the Lord. So we're gonna go through John chapter 21. We're gonna go through one to twenty-two. I'm gonna stop there just kind of for the sake of time. I could do the whole chapter. There's only a few more verses, but I'm going to stop in verse 22, even somewhat for personal reasons. I'll tell you why when we get there. We'll read through, but we're primarily going to apply beginning in verse 15. I've got a handful of reflections for you once we get to there, but I want to get into the story. I want you to hear the story. I want you to feel the story. I want you to enter the story. In fact, Maybe I won't say anything of value to you this morning, but maybe what will be valuable is your introduction or reintroduction to this story. And maybe what the Holy Spirit will invite you to do is just go home and reread this story and find your place in this story and allow the risen Christ, because he is risen indeed, hallelujah, allow the risen Christ to minister to you, to meet you where you are. John chapter 21, verse 1, later, Jesus appeared. It's kind of a theme of this part of the Gospel of John. Jesus appearing, or Jesus revealing himself. Jesus appeared, revealed himself again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee, probably, possibly at the very location I just showed you pictures. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples, several, seven in fact, were there. Simon Peter, who is often used first in the list of disciples. Thomas, who if you were with us last week, Thomas, who was once a doubter, is now maybe the first to confess, my Lord and my God. What a confession. So Thomas is now listed second in this list. Nathanael from Cana and Galilee. If you don't know Nathanael, go back to the beginning of John's gospel. Start reading, you'll meet Nathanael. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, there is because John was a common name, like Mary, a common name in the first century. Some debate about which John wrote the gospel of John, but I tend to humbly believe it was John, the son of Zebedee, one of these two. And then two other disciples, seven of them are there. And Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, there is a lot of discussion throughout church history about what is. I mean, we kind of have to enter into the story, and we enter in with some humility, but we take some guesses because of where this story is going and how John is crafting it. I think it is helpful to begin to think, as Peter says, I'm going fishing, there is a sense of, I don't know what else to do. I mean, he's already met the resurrected Jesus. He's already seen that Jesus has overcome death in the grave, but... But Peter knows that his last real primary interaction in a major way that he can remember is is himself denying Jesus three times. And I do think there's a sense that Peter doesn't know what to do with that failure. He doesn't know what to do with that denial. He feels so much guilt and shame. He feels like he's been disqualified from what Jesus was going to do in the world. And so maybe he just goes fishing because... That's what he knows to do. Or maybe he's just trying to get away. Or maybe he thinks, well, I'm no longer fit to be a part of what Jesus is doing. But he goes fishing. And the other disciples, maybe they feel the same way. Or maybe they're empowered and they can see, oh, Peter, you don't have to feel this way anymore. We're not going to leave you alone. We'll go with you. But they all go fishing together. And John, again, you have to let John be the masterful storyteller that he is. He says they went out in the boat and they caught nothing at all. If you've been reading through John's gospel, that nothing at all would probably echo in your mind back from a few chapters before John chapter 15 verse 5 when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing at all. The disciples are trying to go forth apart from Jesus. They can do nothing at all. The nets are empty. Verse 4, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach. We've talked about this. It's Easter. It's, it's, it's the dawn of the new day. It's a new creation. It's no longer night. The sun has shone. John loves to say it's dawn And these Easter. It's dawn. It's a new day. It's a new day. It's a new day. Even as I was reflecting on this, I remember back when I was in college, uh, my roommate, my college roommate had a red t-shirt that said, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach. He loved to wear that t-shirt. I thought it was cool, but I had a cooler one. Mine said, I really, really, really love Jesus. I love that t-shirt. I wore it all the time. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? Now maybe he's just initiating, but he's, he's making contact. Jesus is seeking out the disciples, and in some ways I hear, Again, Jesus always asking questions. We talk about this. Jesus always asking questions. But in some ways, I hear Jesus saying, how are you? I mean, maybe that's what he's saying to you this morning. How are you? How are you doing? He just wants you to let your guard down so he can come deeper into your life. And he wants to. We're going to see as we keep going. Jesus wants to come deeper into your life because he wants to do some good work there. Well, they reply, no. And he says, well, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. Now, we don't know. John doesn't tell us here what the disciples are thinking. They could be annoyed. Who does this guy think he is? It's possible that they're giving him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, I mean, they're they're getting ready to come back in. They haven't caught anything, but maybe he sees a shoal of fish. Maybe the way the sun is shining at dawn, he can see something they don't see. Or maybe it's just this, maybe they don't even realize it's Jesus, but they're just so ready to obey that they do exactly what he says. We don't really know, but, but they do what he says. And it says they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Apart from Jesus, you do nothing with Jesus. The kingdom is so abundant you can't even imagine. It's the dawn of a new day. And then the disciple Jesus loved, again the author of this, I believe John the son of Zebedee, seeing this says, it's the Lord. Now I'm going to pause there just for a second. It's the Lord. One of the things that Jesus is doing, I love to say that Jesus is the smartest person who has ever lived. (laughs) And one of the things I think Jesus is doing, because he has a plan, and and Peter is the target of what is going to unfold in this chapter. But Jesus has a plan, and, and he's reminding Peter of his story. If you are familiar and if you're not, read the Gospels. But in Luke chapter 5, we get some insight into the beginning of Jesus' calling of the disciples. Peter and his brother Andrew. And then James and John are there too. That's why I think, I think John was there too. And, 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 and they had this miraculous catch. They can't even believe how many fish they catch off of Jesus' word. And John sees it. He's like, oh, it's got to be Jesus. Peter, we were there. It's got to be Jesus. It's the Lord. John's doing, and we love to talk about this at the church, right? John's doing what the church should always do, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. And this is one of the parts that just preaches without preaching. Peter dives into the water and just swims to shore. Again, there is a sense that he's filled with guilt and shame. But Peter is not paralyzed by the past in his present response to Jesus. It's really important. Peter denied Jesus, he deserted Jesus, he betrayed Jesus, but there's something within Peter that still says, Jesus is the only person I want to be near. Jesus is the safest person there is. I just have to be near Jesus. And so Peter, I just love this passion, just dives in and swims to Jesus. Now thoughtlessly swims because he leaves the others behind to pull the load in. I'm sure the others are like, thanks Peter, we'll take care of this without you. But they're 100 yards from shore. Verse 9, they get there and they find Jesus already has breakfast waiting for them fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. One more thing here about Jesus being intentional and personal, recreating circumstances. First, he's reminding Peter of his calling when he first called Peter to follow him. And I think, I think that's good. Sometimes even as a pastor, when I'm sitting with people who are struggling, I will just ask questions. Tell me about the last time Jesus moved in your life or, or you're facing a mountain. Has Jesus ever moved a mountain like this before? And then I get to hear you share your story and it reminds you and strengthens your faith. I think Jesus is doing some of that here. Peter, remember when I first called, you and remember what I called you to. But here he's used a charcoal fire. Now the only other place where that that word charcoal fire shows up is in it's an easy verse to remember John chapter 18 verse 18. But it's when Peter denies. He's in the courtyard of Caiaphas and he denies Jesus. We'll talk about this more but Jesus is recreating these circumstances First reminding, I think reminding Peter of his calling, but now taking Peter back to that painful place of denial. We'll talk more about it, but one of the things I even wonder if he's doing is such human nature. I do it, I know you do it, everybody does it. We love to blame our circumstances. And I almost even wonder if Jesus is recreating this circumstance. All right, it's got the same circumstance before, but what are you going to do now? He's just ministering gently, but but challenging directly Peter to grow. Verse ten, Jesus says, "Bring some of the fish you've caught." So Simon Peter he, he steps up and he drags this net. It says there's 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now it's really funny when you get into reading about this uh, throughout the 2,000 years of the church. Some of our leaders through the past have come up with really intricate ideas about what the 153 represents, kind of crazy stuff sometimes. Uh, I I think it's fun to read that. I will tell you, I think it was probably just because somebody counted and they were like, wow, it's 153. (laughs) But I don't know. I don't know. But what I do think is interesting, and I think John is intentional in this part because he's using this... Miraculous deed of Jesus to show a little bit of the abundance of the kingdom. The net doesn't tear. I do think there's something in there. There's there's this, I mean, we just talked about the network of nations. There's this multitude of a catch of, of a diverse group of people. All the nations are being brought together, and the church should be unified. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17. It's almost as if John is subtly saying to the church, don't be torn apart, don't be split. Yes, you're going to be a collection of a diverse group of people, but stay unified in Christ. Keep pointing one another to Jesus. Verse 12, now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. And it's interesting, we talked about doubt last week. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They, they knew it was the Lord, but you almost get the sense that they didn't know. But they did, but they didn't, but they did, right? There's a little bit of wonder and mystery and doubt and awe. The resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Now, we're going to celebrate communion, so I'll come back to that at the very end as we prepare for communion. But one of the ways that Jesus continues to reveal himself to the world, to the church, is through a meal. And we will celebrate that together. But this is the part where I'm going to get a little bit more specific. So let's do 15 to 17. This is... This is where I really want you to feel the story. And I really want you to find your way into the story of Peter. I want you to maybe even begin to think about some of your own ways that you've denied Jesus. Maybe it was a week ago. Maybe it was a year ago. Maybe it was... (laughs) But begin to think about. After breakfast, Jesus, always so beautifully, so gently, I think he pulls Simon Peter aside. You get this picture that they're walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Simon, uh, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I'm just going to read through this, but then I'll come back to that. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told them. Then Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this caught my attention in a way that I don't think it ever has before as I studied and just sat with the text as I entered into the story this week. Peter was hurt. Jesus asked, Peter was hurt. We're going to talk a little bit. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I'm going to pause there. We'll keep reading through the story. But let me pause there. I have a few reflections. A few things that have stuck out to me. I don't know that they're in some kind of a particular order, but but as as we engage the story, as I invite you deeper, and I want you to think about these things with me. Jesus led Peter to a place of deeper hurt so he could be whole again. I think that's important for you and I to understand to hear in our day and age where we avoid pain at all costs where we do whatever we can to not actually deal with the pain or the problem or our, or our history or our past or certainly our failures. Let's not talk about those. Jesus comes to Peter and he takes him to a place of deeper hurt so we could be whole again. One author says, Peter has already encountered the resurrected Jesus, but it seems that not even the resurrection itself could simply wave a magic wand and get rid of that painful memory. Nothing could except revisiting it and then allowing God to bathe it in his merciful healing. I mean, Peter knows a lot of this. We talk about this all the time at the church. Peter knows a lot of stuff in his head, but how does it get down into his heart so that he lives as if it's true? Well, it's a personal encounter with the risen Jesus, and Jesus pushes him to a place of deeper hurt. I mean, Peter's being reminded of so much. I think in that first question, do you love me more than these? What does Jesus do? Why does he say it that way? Because if you know the story of Peter, what has Peter said on numerous occasions? Though all of these leave you, I will never leave you until he does, until he betrays Jesus. Peter Peter has, Peter has been playing a game. We'll talk about this again at the end. I talk about this frequently. Life is not a game to be won. It's a gift to be lived. And Peter's been playing a game, and he's been keeping score. It's one of the things we do when we play a game. We invent ways to keep score, and Peter's been keeping score. And Peter found out he actually was he was wrong in his comparison and competition. <laughs> and Jesus is bringing that. he's bringing him to, he Peter Peter has to come face to face with some of the foolish things that he said. He doesn't want to think about them again but Jesus because that's the only way he's going to be healed in the presence of Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus again and again, you know I love you. It's the second thing that really captures my attention. You know I love you. I think ever since Peter's bad weekend, where he denied Jesus three times, Peter no longer trusts his own instincts. He's no longer longer as self-confident as he once had been. So what does Peter do? Maybe this is something you need to do this morning. Peter simply appeals to the Supreme Court of Jesus' knowing of him. Jesus, you know I love you. That's all I'm going to say. I can't appeal to my own convictions or or my own conscience anymore. I don't trust myself, but I do appeal to your knowledge of me. I think it's fascinating that Peter doesn't, doesn't list off everything he's done for Jesus to try to make up for his failure. He doesn't bring about a bunch of excuses. He doesn't get into a whole, like, rhetorical self-defense, right? He just says, you know, I love you. That's all, that's, that's enough for Peter. That's enough for Jesus. Hopefully that's enough for you this morning. You may have come in, I don't know if you know the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, but maybe you've come in with a, a rehearsed set of things that you need to do to explain yourself, even in the story of the prodigal The prodigal son never even gets to give his speech. The the father just wraps him with love. So forget your speech and your excuses and your self-defense and just, you know I love you, Jesus. And that's enough. I think we see a lot of Jesus' mercy here. Because Jesus knows how our memory works. And I, I think Jesus didn't want Peter's memory to be I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And and I, you know the enemy would bring those words back to Peter again and again and again. So Jesus asked three times. And yes, it takes Peter to a place of deeper hurt, but it's what Peter needs to experience healing. So in the future, when the enemy attacks Peter, and Peter got he's going to write about the devil, and and the devil says, "Remember when you said you don't know the man? You don't know the man? You don't know the man?" Peter will remember. The Holy Spirit will remind him. <laughs> You know I love you, Jesus. You know I love you, Jesus. You know I love you, Jesus. That's what Peter will remember. And I've read this before, um, this quote, but, but one author reflecting on, on what is happening with Peter as he's denied Jesus three times and now he's being restored says this. Peter would tell us how little he had truly known, either himself or Jesus, prior to this. And with regard to Jesus, I suspect he would repeat with amazement how forgiving Jesus was. What Peter had known as objective information from witnessing Jesus' encounters with other people, he had watched Jesus heal and forgive Many other people. Now Peter was experiencing it personally. He knew it deeply. And I I am sure he would have spoken of his new level of readiness to follow the Christ whom he now knew in his heart, not just in his mind. Again, Jesus is taking truths that Peter knew in his head and driving them deep into his heart. But Peter had to revisit his pain to know the depths of God's love and forgiveness. And I love Jesus' response, right? Feed my sheep, tend the flock, take care of the lambs. The question is asked of Peter and answered by Peter, do you love me? And Peter's answer earns each time not a pat on the back, not a there, there, that's all right then, but a command, A fresh challenge from Jesus, a new commission, time to learn how to be a shepherd, time to feed the lambs and sheep, to look after them. Jesus is saying to Peter, all right, well, take good care of my people whom I give to you. You Peter doesn't say, you know I love you, and then Jesus doesn't say, well, then love me. Jesus says, well, then love the people I love. kind of what he does. And we talk about what it means as this this theme of rest, of deep soul rest that runs all the way through the scriptures from creation to new creation, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And this idea of rest is that you and I are living with both peace and purpose. Peter is not at peace. He is not at rest. He is carrying around so much shame and guilt. He is confronted by his own failure. And Jesus speaks words of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And Peter now receives the peace of God. But peace without purpose does not put your soul at rest. And purpose without peace does not put your soul at rest. But when the two come together, you now know rest. And so Jesus breathes peace into Peter's life and then commissions him with great purpose. Now tend the flock. There is work for you to do good work. Live out of this forgiveness that you've received and pass it on to others. All right, verses 18 and 19. I had some new thoughts on these this week just as I studied them. I think sometimes I get so caught on what we just walked through and the passage that follows that I just skimmed through these verses. But, but I, I had some fresh insight on these verses, I think, this week. Verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And listen to what, this, listen to what he says. this. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Some of you are chuckling. I have a feeling it's those of you who are older and you know something that we're all learning, right? Verse 19, Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. We'll talk a little bit about this, but Peter also, church history tells us, was crucified because of his devotion to Jesus. And I I want you to even think about that in light of what we've just talked about. And then Jesus says these words, and again, I think it's on purpose. It's reminiscent of what he had said to Peter at the beginning. What Peter had said yes to. Peter is going to get an opportunity to live out who he said he was going to be. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. That's why promises. Peter has made promises. I could do a whole sermon on this, but we are getting... You're getting too easy with our words sometimes, and I think we need to remind ourselves the importance of good, healthy promises. A good, healthy promise is something that you say, and it almost becomes a compass for who you're becoming. Peter wasn't perfect in his initial promise to follow Jesus, but Jesus is patient, and he's going to help Peter become the kind of person who really will follow him all the way to death. All the way to his own crucifixion. Now, one of the things that John is doing, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's gospel is a little different. One of the things that John is doing is writing his gospel very much through the lens of the resurrection. And in John's gospel, to truly follow Jesus was something that really only became possible for the disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection. Because they were going to be called to take up their own cross and they didn't really understand or they weren't really empowered until they had received the Holy Spirit, they needed the resurrection and the gift of the Spirit to actually do the things they said they were going to do. In fact, if you, again, are reading through the Gospel of John and you have these stories in mind, in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, Simon Peter had said to Jesus, Where are you going? And Jesus had said this, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Again, Jesus is not surprised. He's not surprised by Peter's failure. He's not surprised by your failure, and he's not surprised by my failure. Peter had even said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, Will you lay your life down for me. Truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. I mean, what's fascinating is Peter in that moment in the courtyard of Caiaphas had denied Jesus three times. But now, 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 Peter really will become the kind of person who follows Jesus all the way to his own crucifixion for 30 or 40 years Peter is going to follow Jesus. He's going to be there at Pentecost. when the, We'll talk about Pentecost on Pentecost Sunday. He's going to be there to see the explosion of the church. He is going to shepherd the flock for decades. And he's going to end up in Rome where Nero will have him nailed to a cross. I see Jesus giving Peter grace for the future because in many ways at the end, When when Peter is martyred, when Peter is crucified, he will not be tempted to ask, is this awful thing happening to me because I once so disappointed my Lord? Is this my payback for my denial? No, Peter has learned from Jesus by now, and Peter has been told that no, this mission involves a cross, and you will suffer if you follow me. And Peter knows that from the beginning. But he's all in all glory be to God one commentator said this Peter is learning he is learning we'll talk a little bit about this game and winning and losing Peter is learning that it is the way we lose more than the way we win if the gospel is to be believed and God is to receive the glory Jesus tells Peter this difficult news, and I find it interesting in the front, and he doesn't, Peter's going to see all kinds of, we could call, ministry success, but Peter, that's not, what, that's not what Jesus uses to bring Peter into the special calling. No, this is where it's going to lead, but Peter says, I'm all in. And I think it also tells us a little bit more of Peter's journey, background, and maybe, maybe this is another way that you can find yourself in the story. That's why I love the story. I, I find myself in the story. Because if you read through the Gospels and you pay attention to what's going on with Peter, you'll see that Peter's story revolves around him wanting to control everyone and everything around him. Peter is always wanting to control the situation. He wants it to work out the way he wants it to work out. And if you read through the Gospels, he's not above trying to control Jesus. Peter likes to be in control. And Peter is not, early on in in the ministry of Jesus, Peter is not willing to follow Jesus in the Jesus way. He really doesn't understand the Jesus way, and he wants Jesus to do the things the way he wants them done. And he wants to tell Jesus what to do, which is not following Jesus, right? Jesus said, follow me. Don't tell me what to do. You follow me. And Peter, as he learns, he's not a good follower, right? In that moment of denial, he's broken. And Peter realizes there are many things he has to unlearn. As you follow through the story of Peter, and again, maybe you find yourself in the story, you realize with Peter that maybe you're not the greatest. Maybe you're one of the least. That's what Paul says. I'm the worst of all, the least of all sinners. I've had to go. That's why I love this. I've had to go on my own journey. I've, I've jokingly shared with you that when James and John asked to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus, and Jesus says it's not for you, it's for other people. I'm like, well, maybe me, right? Maybe I'm the greatest. No, 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 no. We, we keep getting this wrong. Maybe we all begin to suspect that we're not the greatest. And God uses Peter's greatest failure as the breakthrough to to get beyond his pride. Again, Peter is hurt. Jesus takes Peter to a place of deeper hurt, but he has to because that's the only way that, that Peter will be detoxed of this poisonous pride. It needs to be drained out of him. It needs to be drained out of you. It needs to be drained out of me. We talk a bit about modern-day Babylon here at Crossview. Well, modern-day Babylon tells you and me that it's the great ones who lead. And it's the great ones who succeed. But Jesus seems to say that his church is led by those who are broken and allow themselves to be put back together in a new way. Peter is going to lead the church, and it's almost like his failure is his prerequisite to be a leader. The church is going to be led, not by the great, but by those who are broken and reassembled. I can say this to you, I can say this to me. If if we are going to arrive at the place where God can use us, we're going to be confronted by Jesus which I said it that way intentionally for myself because if you know me, I don't love conflict. I've, I'm learning how to, to remain present in conflict and to engage when I'm confronted. I don't always love it, but Jesus is someone who confronts. Now, I hope you see he'll do it in a very personal way. He'll wait till you're done eating, right? You've, you've, you're, your, your stomach's full. You'll go for a walk along the shore. He's going to be so strategic and and mindful of who you are and where you are, but he wants to confront you with some things because he wants to heal you. Stop running from some of your pain and some of your failure and look Jesus in the eye so you can say to him, okay, I'm done with the games and I'm done with the excuses and I'm done with the self-defense. I'm done blaming all these circumstances. I just love you, Jesus. I just love you and let him restore you. Let him say to you again, follow me. Because he, he wants to say it to you again. But, he, but he, needs to, he needs to know that you understand that the cross is part of the narrow road that you will have to walk to. Now hopefully I pray that you are not crucified upside down like church history says Peter was. But you're still going to have plenty of hard things and suffering. And you're, you're going to have to deal with some pain in the present, some pain in the future. And you might need to revisit some pain from your past. But Jesus wants to meet you there and heal you. The kingdom of God is an interplay of invitation and challenge. Jesus is the safest person you'll ever meet. When you see Jesus, you'll jump overboard. You don't care if other people got, You're just going to go get to you be with Jesus. But he might have some hard things to say, but keep walking with him. Keep walking. I, I was thinking, this, this, it's, it's, like, it's like you don't want to hear it, but you do. You don't want to hear that you have to sit with your pain a little bit longer, but you do want to hear that you can be healed. It just tends to be how Jesus, what, what do we say here sometimes? You can't go around your pain, you have to go through it. Jesus cannot entrust his church to the care of those who do not know what it is to fail. And Jesus cannot entrust his church to the care of those who do not know what it is to hurt, what it is to to shed tears over the brokenness in this world. Peter is undone so that he can be remade. Before you and I can be remade, we have to be undone. And this is part of the beauty. We, we, we sing sometimes of amazing grace. God uses our sins and our failures to form Christ within us. That's what he does. And I kind of shared this. Just I didn't even mean to. I just did a few weeks ago. I got a quote on my, on my, in my office on my wall uh, from an author that I love about, about how there's something about what it means this this it's 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 more beautiful to be broken and then put back together that that being a christian means being restored in christ it's a restoration that makes us somehow more significant because we've been ruined i shared that a few weeks ago and several of you came up to me and just said that was just good news to you because you know you've been ruined you know you've been broken <laughs> but to find out that you can be more beautiful now because Jesus has put you back together. He's restored you. It's, it's a new day. It's a dawn of a new day. Your night has ended. Let the Easter tide begin. All right, John chapter 21, verses 20 to 22, just the last few minutes before communion. Peter turned around, and he saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked, what about him? It's almost a sense, we'll talk a little bit about this, but, but Peter has been trying to bake, break free from this, this, this keeping score by, by, by proving himself to be greater than the other disciples. All these will leave you, I'll never leave you. I love you more than these. He's trying to break free, but he still hasn't done it. What about him, Jesus? What's his story? You just said, ah, I've got a painful death waiting for me. What about him? And church, I will tell you, verse 22 has been one of the most important verses in, in my vocational ministry. But also in learning how to break free from the game so that I can just receive the gift. This is what Jesus says to Peter He has said this to me over and over and over again. And maybe he's saying this to you this morning. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? In other other words, don't worry about him. You concentrate on me. As for you, you follow me. One of the translations I used to read would say, what is it to you? You follow me. In fact, in our last church at one point, and we, Kami and I were living in another house, and we, we, we had a, an unfinished room in our basement, and I told Kami, I want to paint this verse on the wall. <laughs> I just want to read it. Every time I go down in the basement, what is it to you, you follow me, because I love to play the game. But there's no rest in the game. There's no life in the game. The game is just something that human beings have made up. We've made life a kind of competitive game, and if there's a game, we've invented ways to keep score because we think we need to keep score. And so in modern-day Babylon, we keep score with money or power or acquisition or social recognition or even moral virtue. But sometimes we have our own funny ways of keeping score in the church. Peter exemplifies that. And part of the problem with playing the game and why we never find rest is because we we convince ourselves that if the game is going well, then we're winners and we can feel good about ourselves. But if we're not doing well, we begin to call ourselves losers and we feel terrible about ourselves. But I would remember, I want to remind you that life is not a game, it's a gift and part of the scandal of grace is that we can't earn it or deserve it. You can't earn or deserve grace. You can only receive it and give it. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to receive the gift of grace. Life is not a game to be won. It's a gift to be lived. And yeah, maybe you've been a loser and maybe you've lost, but guess what? Jesus loves the winners and the losers because he's not playing the game. He's just offering you the scandalous gift of grace. As the church, we have a different approach to life than modern-day Babylon. And it's not the task of the church to teach how to be winners in the wrong game. Because losing and winning doesn't mean that much. What matters is that you and I know that we're loved by God. That you and I are able to tell Jesus, you know I love you. And that we receive his commissioning and we go forth and we love the people that Jesus loved. We tend the flock. The story of the restoration of, G- of Peter invites you and I into this story. We find ourselves in this story. And Jesus says to you and he says to me that if we follow him, he will make something of our life. If we follow Jesus, we'll find everything it is that we're looking for. We may try to make life a game. We may try to keep score. And then we'll be reminded, at some point, we'll be reminded of our failures and our shortcomings and our sin and what we've lost. And we will begin to wonder, and the enemy will pounce. The enemy will pounce. And we will wonder, have we disqualified ourselves? Do we not count anymore? Are we not worthy of the love of God? And we'll hear that rooster crow. But I want you to receive the gift of grace today. If you can say to Jesus, you know I love you. I'm not perfect and I'm prone to failure, but yes, I love you. Then I believe Jesus wants you to know that that's enough. And he wants to personally meet you and restore you. And I hope that's good news for you this morning.